0: This is MSCI Perspectives, your source for insights for global investors and access to research and expertise from across the investment industry. I'm your host, Adam Bass, and today is March 24th, 2022. We're now a month into the war with Ukraine. It is without doubt a humanitarian tragedy. And while it hasn't yet turned into an economic tragedy for global markets, it is certainly adding to the uncertainty, as well as the volatility that investors continue to face.
1: Things like a specter of rising interest rates, rising commodity prices, sell-off on U.S. treasuries that has sent 10-year government bond yields to the highest level in 33 months. Europe is dealing with a large influx of refugees. We see the return of coronavirus to China, which once again threatens global supply chains, uh, which may amplify pressure on prices and apply downward pressure on output
0: not to mention long-standing concerns about inflation and growth. This week on Perspectives, we'll talk about how central banks around the world are attempting to fight inflation without hampering growth. Let's meet our first guest.
2: My name is Andy Sparks. I work in MSCI's solutions research effort.
0: And the owner of The Voice you heard just a moment ago...
1: My name is uh, Oleg Rubin. I look after solutions research uh, for Asia-Pacific.
0: Last week, the Federal Reserve in the U.S. announced a quarter-point rise in the federal funds rate, its first increase in more than three years. It's a move designed to combat inflation that has ballooned in the United States to levels we have not seen in decades. But according to Andy, MSCI's long-term observer of the Fed, the rate hike was a non-event.
2: That's because Chairman Powell had effectively pre-announced this move when he testified to Congress earlier in the month. And I think instead that the market's primary focus at this meeting was the commentary around the state of the economy and its expectation of future policy moves. And in fact, the Fed signaled a very positive outlook on the economy, as well as the Fed's ability to lower inflation at the press conference. Chairman Powell emphasized the remarkable rebound in the U.S. labor market, which cuts across demographic and socioeconomic groups. He also highlighted the strong growth in wages. He came out clearly on the side of the Fed fighting today's 40-year high in inflation, and he did not think it would lead to a material deterioration in labor market conditions.
0: So the decision to raise interest rates was, in part a reflection of the Fed's belief that the labor market and job growth in the United States is strong, strong enough to support six more rate increases this year. But is a quarter point rise now enough?
2: There was a dissenting voice. It's a a very well-known voice. This was the voice of James Bullard, who is the president of the St. Louis Fed. Rather than a quarter of a point increase, he wanted a, a full half a point. On Friday of the same week, he actually uh, released a statement saying that he'd like to see the Fed funds rate pushed above 3% by the end of the year. And by the way, in contrast, um, as was announced at this meeting, the median Fed forecast for the Fed funds rate by year end is 1.9. So um, James Bullard um, feels the Fed needs to be uh, much, much quicker in raising rates. The arguments for raising rates more aggressively earlier on are that if you don't do it aggressively inflation could get out of control and so james bullard i think is his main concern is that the fed may lose credibility because its current inflation target is two percent actual inflation is much above it so he feels that if um if inflation continues to be very high in uh, much higher than the target, I think he's just concerned that inflation will can become more of a permanent, long-term phenomenon rather than making it a short-term phenomenon.
0: James Bullard, he's basically worried about the Fed losing control of inflation and losing its own credibility if it raises rates too slowly. But honestly, if we're if we're looking at up to six more rate hikes this year anyway. What's the harm in raising them more aggressively now?
2: You know, if you go too fast, too early, you could, under some, some views of the economy, you could cut off economic growth. So we have a lot of momentum in the labor market. But if you're too aggressive at raising rates, you run the risk that um, that, that recovery in the labor market may be reduced. It may be impeded.
0: But what if James Bullard is right?
2: So that is a real concern that many market participants have. That's a very important question. The Fed's median inflation forecast for 2022 is noticeably more optimistic than the market's implied inflation forecast. And those implied inflation forecasts are taken from prices of traded U.S. Treasury securities. So if the market proves to be correct and inflation is higher than the Fed, then the Fed will likely need to tighten monetary policy more than previously thought. This could include more aggressive increases in the Fed funds rate, as well as accelerated tapering of the Fed's balance sheet. Which is bad because... The markets do not like abrupt changes in monetary policy. So in this case, equity markets could sell off Short-maturity treasury yields could come under significant pressure, resulting in a flatter yield curve, and in addition to increased market volatility, I mean, very importantly, the Fed's credibility in the market would likely suffer. So therein lies the problem. How do you cool inflation without cooling the labor market? So you have different scenarios that are possible. There could be the the, uh, too little, too late there could be too much too early. And then you have, let's call it a soft landing or threading the eye of the needle, something where you just get it right. So skeptics of the Fed might argue the Fed is way overly optimistic about being able to control inflation while having um, minimal effects on the labor market.
0: And there you have it, the title of our episode. Oleg Continued the Thread.
1: Chair Jay Powell uh, saying that he uh, was acutely aware of the need to return the economy to price stability and was determined to use the toolkit to do exactly that and those recent statements from him indicate that uh, the Fed may well be prepared to move more aggressively. To quell inflation, I think he said in the last few days that there was nothing to prevent the bank uh, moving forward with a half-point rate increase in May. But of course, added that the committee has not made uh, a decision yet on uh, the next policy move. Most central banks they try to create that balance between inflation and growth. Now, uh, some have been more pro-growth in nature. Uh, ECB, uh, for example, due to the historical influence of kind of the Bundesbank philosophy, has been very much an inflation-fighting uh, central bank in nature. But there's always this uh, this idea of okay, if you raise rates too far too fast, then you are essentially quelling growth, which is uh, not something that, uh, which is something you may be more cautious about doing. Given uh, that there are significant risks to growth, as we mentioned earlier, so basically it's a it's a very delicate balance that uh, some developed market central banks need to tread right now.
0: Another thing investors pay close attention to is the composition of the Fed's portfolio. Andy brought up the fact that the Fed may begin tapering as early as May,
2: and this is significant. Um, just take into account that the Fed currently owns about 25 percent of the U.S. Treasury market. They also own about 25% of the agency MBS market. So they are huge, huge market players. And the the significant sell-off in the Treasury market we've seen over the past six months, um, uh, some of that sell-off probably can be attributed to anticipated reductions in the size of the Fed's balance sheet. The real questions a lot of investors are asking is the speed at which the Fed may reduce its portfolio and how might the composition change. And so specifically the composition change, for, for example, if they let the mortgage portfolio shrink faster than the Treasury portfolio, that could put upward pressure on mortgage spreads. And in terms of selling Treasuries, the, the Fed owns Treasuries along the yield curve, they also own a lot of Treasury inflation-protected securities, also known as TIPS. And the TIPS market generally is le- less liquid than other parts of the Treasury market. So if, for example, the Fed sold a lot of TIPS, that could put pressure on, on, on the prices of TIPS, and the inverse of, of the uh, price on the TIP are the yields, and those are real yields. So the market pays a lot of attention to real yields, and those real yields are, are generally being drawn from the TIPS market. And so that's another important parameter to be focused on.
0: How is the rest of the world handling all of this?
2: The ECB is grappling with the same basic issues as the Fed. Inflation was rising in the eurozone even before the invasion. And now it is likely to be even higher, um, along with weaker growth in the wake of the invasion. The inflation rate in the eurozone is still quite a bit lower than in the U.S., and Europe is being more affected by the war than is the than is the US. And so the ECB is 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 in the process of tightening monetary policy like the Fed is. But given that the eurozone economy faces greater risk from the war and given a lower underlying rate of inflation, its tightening of monetary policy will likely be significantly less aggressive than what we will see in the US.
1: There were hopes that Europe's economy might grow faster than the US in uh, 2022. If you look at the recent months, uh, most central banks would have tapered or ceased asset purchases and many began increasing policy rates. But what we're seeing now is that uh, uh, many policymakers are also kind of looking towards a gloomier outlook than uh, what they have been earlier. And in fact, some are talking about how uh, the current uh, military conflict in Europe could be much worse for the European economy than the coronavirus pandemic due to, uh, you know, a number of things, supply chain disruptions, energy scarcity, inflation. But there's also a confidence effect. So uh, put all of those together, this then uh, sets up many essential banks to think about uh, a gloomier outlook, especially in developed markets.
0: When monetary policy tightens in developed markets, it's tended to stem flows of capital into emerging ones, which makes sense. I mean, if yields are higher in markets that have tended to be more stable, Why take greater risk in markets that have historically been more volatile? I asked Oleg what he thought about this, and here's what he said.
1: In general, a lot of emerging market countries are in better shape today than they were during other periods of Fed tightening. What does that mean? Uh, Basically, bigger uh, foreign currency reserves, uh, better budgetary uh, and external balances uh, have helped insulate them to some extent from the risk of capital outflows. But that doesn't mean that a large enough shock still could not penetrate uh, that buffer. There is a possibility that capital flows may revert abruptly, uh, and uh, that could leave uh, a, a both uh, you know, asset markets, uh, bond and equity markets, as well as currency markets in emerging markets in, uh, uh, in turmoil. So while vulnerabilities in countries have uh, uh, have decreased to some extent relative to what we saw a number of years ago, let's say during the taper tantrum in 2013, that still doesn't mean that emerging markets are completely insulated from, uh, from what is happening with respect to Fed rate rises.
0: In our prep meeting for the interview, Oleg mentioned something interesting. Well, I mean, he mentioned a lot of somethings interesting, but he said that inflation, while it was a huge concern for... Developed markets in the West, it's not as much of a concern in Asia, for example, at least, at least not in the same way. I asked him why that is and what it means for the global economy.
1: Many countries in Asia have been insulated, to a large extent, from the surge of inflation. So at least so far, uh, and the way we can see that is if we compare core inflation, uh, you know, at the end of last year with average inflation over the past ten years or so then the underlying inflation in most Asian countries remains below its pre-pandemic levels. And this is especially so in the middle-income Asian economies, where output uh, remains somewhat depressed. But even in uh, kind of a higher income economies such as Japan, this is also the case. Uh, now, there's some dispersion there as well. So there have been some countries where the economy has rebounded more strongly after the coronavirus pandemic. So, countries like Taiwan and Korea uh, come to mind, uh, as does Singapore. uh, And here, inflation did rise to above historical average rates more recently. And uh, in particular, uh, we've had uh, service prices have a bit of an effect on inflation in these countries. But I think, you know, in contrast to what we're seeing in the US, uh, in Japan, uh, most market participants uh, still expect the BOJ to leave its policy rate unchanged, probably until about 2025 or so.
0: Can you give any idea about why is the attitude, why would the Japanese Central Bank make that decision in in the face of higher inflation as opposed to the Fed, for example? Like, what what, what factors are at play there?
1: Well, I think, first of all, there is, uh, in Japan itself, uh, the inflation still remains somewhat subdued, and this has been uh, the case for a while. So, uh, in fact, you know, with uh, if we look some years ago, with Abenomics, one uh, kind of aspect of this was how to restart inflation, uh, and uh, uh, the idea that restarting inflation might have a positive impact on growth in Japan. So again, it's that same uh, kind of growth versus inflation trade-off, and in Japan, frankly, uh, growth is somewhat of a higher priority probably relative to uh, inflationary pressures that remain rather subdued.
0: Let's, let's stick with this part of the world, uh, but switch over to commodities. Let's talk about Australia, head, head south a bit. How, how have they been affected during this time, especially as inflation goes up? Generally, commodities do pretty well, right?
1: Uh, I think it's, uh, it, it's, kind of the, it's almost the other way around. Rising commodity prices uh, tend to be reflected in higher inflation uh, rates overall. Until recently, I would say that inflationary pressures in Australia have been somewhat less pronounced compared to other uh, major developed economies. However, what we saw in uh, in recent months, the last few months of uh, 2021 and early 2022, is that it looks like headline inflation uh, as well as underlying inflation were higher than expected by the Reserve Bank of Australia. So there is evidence of inflationary pressures there broadening beyond goods prices and the services prices. And there are also upstream cost pressures in housing constructions and uh, durable goods, which may push underlying inflation higher in the near term. Now, higher commodity prices, of course, would increase the cost of producing goods and further fuel inflationary pressures. There is also a possibility that uh, uh, rising oil prices and rising food prices, which we are seeing and may see more of in the coming months, may dampen the demand for other goods. In Australia, so this then leads to some uh, some economists downgrading their expectations for growth in Australia while increasing their expectations for inflation. Yet at the same time, of course, Australia is a commodity exporter, and there are indications that coal exports in particular could increase very significantly in the current month, in the in in, in the next few months, so uh, March uh, uh, through through May, uh, for instance, with export earnings correspondingly jumping upwards. And that benefits you know, the trade surplus, that benefits certain sectors of the Australian economy, as well as, of course, the country's budget. And I wondered
0: about China. It's had its own difficulties over the past year. In fact, Evergrande was in the news again just this week with a $2.1 billion asset seizure. But China is far removed, at least geographically, from both the war in Europe and inflation in the States.
1: At the moment, uh, it seems like the Chinese economy may still be um, expanding relatively healthily, so around its uh, pre-pandemic trend perhaps this year. But there has been a gradual slowing of potential growth, and that's uh, likely to continue in the coming years. Uh, unlike what we saw uh, you know, in the US, I would say financial conditions in China are also easing a bit. So you've had the central bank lowering several of its uh, policy interest rates uh, not so long ago. It also lowered the reserve requirements for banks. But on the other hand, we have had some Chinese officials you know, sufficiently worried about uh, the situation to say in recent days that uh, the government would act to boost uh, uh, the economy in the uh, first quarter and introduce policies that are favorable to the market. So while uh, there is a you know, reasonably benign economic picture uh, in China, There are still some worries about how the current situation might uh, might affect what is, as you say now, a very large uh, emerging economy. It's a
0: truism that we live in uncertain times, but it can also seem that investors are especially attuned to that uncertainty. I wanted to find out from Oleg what indicators investors may be looking for as they plan their next steps and the kinds of questions they might be asking.
1: From a kind of more, let's say, medium to long-term perspective, Uh, I think over the recent years what we have seen is a steady decline in the trend of globalization. And that's been a big driver of uh, uh, economic growth for quite a number of decades. Globalization was positive for growth and it helped suppress inflation. We've seen that take a hit both from the pandemic of the last two years as well as uh, the current geopolitical crisis. That has accelerated uh, this decline in uh, globalization. And so what we are seeing now is that some institutional investors are uh, worried that stagflation instead of you know being a risk scenario, which it has been for a while, can become the baseline scenario. So that's that's the first worry. So how do you position the portfolio in uh, that kind of environment? But the other thing is that uh, given the, uh, the kind of the decline from uh, globalization, uh, one aspect of this is that there's also likely to be significant dispersion between individual country economic outcomes, be it with respect to growth or with respect to inflation. And we already uh, mentioned some of this uh, right, with respect to how uh, the Asian economies haven't really uh, had uh, the same inflationary pressures uh, as uh, some others. Also, uh, it's true to say that uh, the growth uh, kind of, uh, the track of growth has been quite different between uh, certain emerging markets in Asia versus countries like China versus uh, developed markets. So uh, there has been this decoupling of economic prospects. The right level of granularity is something that probably a lot of allocators are still struggling with. So they see that there is dispersion, but at what level do you capture that dispersion is an important question that uh, market participants are facing.
0: That's all for this week. Joe and I would like to thank Oleg and Andy for offering their insights, and thank all of you for listening. Next up, it's time for our quarterly check-in with Atendra Varsani and a look at the markets over the first quarter of the year. We'll also be joined by MSCI's Mark Carver, and our old friend, Anthony Kruger of BlackRock. Until then, I'm your host, Adam Bass, and this is MSCI Perspectives. Stay safe, everyone.